Would you pray with me? Father, we, as your people, are gathering together this morning, and we come before you in humility and dependence. We recognize that you alone have power, and you alone have majesty and glory, and so we bless your holy name this morning. It's because of your great grace that we are able to gather and praise you, and so we want to make much of your salvation and your mighty works to redeem your people. We're thankful that as Jerry led us in a prayer confession, that because we have received your immeasurable mercy in Jesus, we are also able to give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. So today we give thanks to the God of gods and to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love which endures forever. We give thanks to the one who alone does great wonders like creating the sun and the stars, the snow and rain, the one who made heaven and earth for your steadfast love endures forever. We thank our Redeemer who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. You gave us physical and spiritual life. Father, you sustain all flesh, for your steadfast love endures forever. And because we know you hear our prayers, that you are pleased when your children cry out to you, we pray that you would increase our faith today. Help us to walk in wisdom before you. Keep us in holiness and in humble dependence on you. We pray that you would bring healing to those among us who are sick in body or soul. That you would deliver us from sin and temptations like apathy or anger or bitterness, laziness or lust or envy and pride. Oh, Father, help us to love you and pursue your purposes in this world. We ask that you would bring light and understanding to our unbelieving family and friends and even the nations. Open their eyes to the salvation that Jesus gives through repentance and faith. Help them to believe and to be saved. Help us to be bold in our witness and to endeavor to continue in prayer for them. May we also read, pray, and boldly share the scriptures as you draw us closer to yourself. Lord, we're mindful to pray not only for those who are gathered together here in this room today, but also for our brethren who will gather at Connection Church in Belfouche. And listen to Pastor Stephan. For those gathering over at Redeeming Grace, and Pastor Josh Brown, and Calvary Baptist, and Pastor Josh Bonner, Lord, help these churches to continue to entrust themselves to you and your word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word today and that you would give these believers the desire and the ability to obey their good Savior. As we think of the church across the world today, we're mindful to pray for our Ukrainian brother and sisters. We learned that there are at least 400 Baptist church buildings that have been destroyed due to the Russia's war. Those congregations have been scattered, many fleeing the country. And Father, we ask that the Ukrainian church would be able to gather again. 
that you preserve your witness there, that they would be salt and light during this war. And in particular, we pray for Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary and their president, Yaroslav. We ask that you would preserve the seminary, that you would raise up more pastors. We pray for an end to this war and that the Christians who have fled would return. Father, we ask that Russia would withdraw. The sovereignty of Ukraine would be restored. But above all, we ask for the Spirit's sovereign intervention so that many would come to repentance and faith in Jesus. And this is our prayer for our own country as well, Lord. We ask that you would raise up more godly men to plant and pastor churches. May we even see that within our own congregation. You would raise up men and women to go around the world as gospel witnesses, serving Christ in every sector of life. That your hand of protection and blessing would be upon those who are now governing. governing. Let those who serve in public office, who govern well, be successful. Let justice roll down like the waters. It is with confidence that we pray together as one body, for we know the love Christ has for his bride, the church. And we ask all this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we will uh, be looking at Psalm 19. So I invite you to turn there and uh, find your way to that short, short psalm, just Five verses. I don't know if you've had any questions posed to you today. Are you awake? Did you hear what I just did? I just asked you a question. All right. Sometimes questions can be tiring, right? You think of a road trip, and what's the question we often hear? Are we there yet? Or a hungry child whose mother is working away in the kitchen, and they constantly say, Can we eat yet? Is it ready? Or those endless questions of young children with great curious minds. Where did this color come from? What kind of bird is that? Where do babies come from? You think of that uh, Christmas vacation movie? Uh, No, no, no. uh, Home Alone, right? So there's that kid that's standing outside the van. And he's pestering the guy with all these questions. How many miles per gallon does this thing get? How long does it get? And the guy's like, I don't know, kid. I'm just a driver. But questions can also be practical. You ever been lost and your GPS is of no help? You've never been to this place and it cannot find it. And so you ask someone who's local for directions. Or you are approaching a math teacher because this equation is really complex and you need them to explain it to you once more. But questions can also be more than just practical or mildly annoying. Questions can also be helpful in a diagnostic sense. They can actually preserve life. You think of the doctor who asks the patient about their medical history before treatment begins. What medications are you taking? What are your symptoms? How long have they lasted? Where does it hurt? Knowing that without an accurate medical history, a wrong diagnosis could lead to disastrous consequences, the doctor will take his time. Well, in Psalm 15, verse 1, the psalmist asks what I believe is the most important question anyone could ever ask, which means its answer 
is extremely important. It's a two-part question. O Lord, who shall, ab- who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, I hope that today you will stick with me for the next several minutes as we work our way through this psalm. And if you do, I think you will discover why this is the most important question that you need to have an answer for. The psalmist says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is camping language to us, but that's not the necessary way that we should interpret it. The tent and the holy hill, they're the background of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem was was more than just the capital city for ancient Israel. It was the place where the tabernacle had been placed by David. And then later, Solomon built his temple there. It was the place for all of Israel to worship the God they served. It was the only place in the whole land. And so there's this idea of a pilgrimage, and as the pilgrims are rising that pathway, that road to Jerusalem, way up in the elevations of the hills of Judea, they are reflecting on this God that has called them to meet together. So whether David is using this psalm as one of the three pilgrimages a year, Passover or the first fruits or the Feast of Booths, These people are walking up the road through the mountains as they see Jerusalem, and then they begin to see the the city of God, and then the tent that was located on that holy hill, the, the tabernacle there. They had to examine themselves before entering the courts of God's sanctuary. And this preparation included both body and soul. It's interesting, if you flip over to Psalm 26 and 27, you will hear some of the similar tones as we find here in Psalm 15. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 26, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, asks the same question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So there is already, in just this first verse, Everything is located around the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the place of meeting with God. That's the the where this is all taking place, the location. But the question remains, who is it that can be prepared to stand in God's presence? Now, David's going to answer that in verses 2 through 5. But I want to just preface this all by saying this. David is not describing the identity of a single individual. The who question isn't so much of a question of a specific person who can do that or, or uh, of a genetic, uh, sorry, of, of Israel or any of the other nations around. It's what kind of person. So that's what we need to understand today. The kind of person that can enjoy fellowship with God. And in verse 2, David tells us who that person is. 
It's as we quoted from Psalm 24 and verse 4. Those who are blameless and righteous. It reminds us of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. In answering his own question, question one, who can live in the presence of God? David answers that question, and he describes the moral requirements one must possess in order to bring acceptable worship to God and in order to indeed engage God and stand before him. And what we find as the psalm unfolds in verses 2 through 5 is that he uses this threes, systems of three, positive and negative descriptions. He goes back and forth. So follow along as I read from verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Positive. Now here come some negative things. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Positive now, verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Negatives. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And what is the conclusion of all this? Someone like this, he who does these things shall never be moved. So I want us to reflect on these ethics that the psalmist points out. Beginning in verse 2, here's the three positively phrased ones. He walks blamelessly. And what does that mean? Well, as we saw last week in Psalm 25, living in covenant with God doesn't mean that you are perfect. It means that when you fail, you follow God's instructions on how to be made right with him through a sacrifice in the Old Testament, through atonement for your sins, through a blood offering. You confess those sins and you turn from them. You acknowledge your sin against God. And then you can be described as one who is blameless. The Hebrew word here signifies a moral way of living. It's not synonymous with perfect but it is with an attitude of the heart that desires to please God. So a blameless person is one who isn't perfect, but who demonstrates integrity by following and pursuing God. He does what's right, the psalmist also says. A a term of righteousness describes God or man in his relations with other men. So it's our relationship with God, it's our relationship with one another. The righteous man is going to do what's right. He's going to live in accordance with God's expectations. He will live justly. Psalmist goes on. Here's his third positive. He speaks truth in his heart. And so again, we have this relationship between the heart as the seat of one's being, kind of our mind, our soul. All these are interchangeable terms. But there's a connection with who we really are and speech. Did you see that? He speaks truth in his heart. So this must be someone with integrity in all their relationships and activities. 
what we speak, did you know this? It comes from our heart. And so when we are short-tempered with one another, it's because our heart is angry. It's our heart is riled up. It's agitated. It's not right. And so who we really are will be mirrored in our speech. Whether you're a proud man or you're a humble man, whether you are selfish or generous, whether you are harsh or kind, foolish or wise, dishonest or truthful. We could go on and on, but your speech is a direct pipeline to your heart. And the psalmist is describing the person whose speech exhibits truthfulness, reliability. And did you notice these three activities? He walks, he does, and he speaks. It's the whole of who we are. I mean, even when you're asleep, you're doing something. You're sleeping. When you walk, it's your life. It's how you conduct yourselves in, the, in, the, in front of other people. You do life in front of people, and your life and your heart are revealed, revealed by your speech. So, just like Psalm 1, these three activities are the expressions of what the righteous do that reveal their character. What a wise person does in harmony with the expectations of God and man. Now, notice what follows in verse 3 highlights what a blameless person does not do. So, he does these things, verse 2. He doesn't do these things, verse 3. He does not slander people. A righteous person doesn't spy on people and then talk about them, gossip. There's no backbiting. There's, this is not a laughing matter because slandering someone is something a blameless man does not do. He does not walk over people with his tongue or with his fingers in however many characters you can throw out on Twitter. He does no evil to his neighbor, we're also told in verse 3. And let's understand neighbor here. It's not like Jesus' use of the word in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's what we might call a frequent associate or a friend. A blameless person doesn't do evil to those who are close to them. Someone that you regularly hang out with. The evil person has no sense of loyalty. They will lay traps for anyone to fall into, but the blameless man doesn't purposely hurt his fellow man, let alone his friend. And then also we're told he does not take up a reproach upon family or friend. And so the psalmist takes this friendship a step further. A wise man will not initiate in doing wrong to people around him, nor does he rejoice in casting a slur on one of his friends. Instead, he empathizes in the hurt. He doesn't add insult to injury. Here's something evil spoken about your friends. Do you lean in to like say, oh, but did you know this about them? Or do you act as someone who cares for them and knows them and you stand up for them? So as you look at verse 4, notice we switch back then to the positively Uh, phrased ethical characteristics. He rejects and despises the vile person. A vile person can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, so let me just narrow it down. It's not someone who's not like us. 
doesn't talk like us, dress like us, who's not, it's not about appearances, it's about character. A vile person, in the biblical sense of the word, is a reprobate, someone who's known for doing evil. And the godly are not free to despise and scorn any sinner, only those who are hardened in their perversities. You know, I mean, this seems like you're talking out of your mouth. We just prayed that we would share the gospel with sinners. And now you're saying he rejects and despises the vile person. Well, how can you have it both ways? How can we really love the lost and yet despise and reject them? Again, notice the characteristic that is attached to this action. It is a known sinner who is hardened in their sin, who cares not for spiritual things. It is someone who is a really, really sinful person. David goes on to say, this person rejects this level of wickedness, but he respects the people of God. You see that the wise man shows concern and deep respect for other believers. In this, we are called to respect the rights, the gifts, and the status of others. And so when we come in together in this assembly, as James warns us, we are not to look upon one another with prejudice or bias. There are rich and poor in this room together. There are people of different ethnicities and nationalities in this room together. There are people of different genders and educational backgrounds in this room together. And we are to respect those who are known by Jesus. We are to appreciate them. There is no need for us to act in a destructive way. We should not express jealousy or judgmentalism or try to use power to subvert others. This is someone who loves his neighbor as himself, as we're instructed in the law, Leviticus 19. Whom God rejects, here's the big qualifier, whom God rejects, the psalmist rejects. Whom God loves, we are to love. And notice at the end of verse 4, he is to hold himself accountable, who swears to his own hurt. You ever made a promise that was made rashly without a lot of thought, and then when it came due to fill it out, to fulfill that covenant, that oath, you had to really inconvenience yourself to it. I'll help you move, I promise, brother. I'll be there. But the day they chose to move is the day that you had plans to go into the hills or go swimming at Pactola or go kayaking or on a bike ride or you're going to go to a game of some sort out of town. And you say, you know what, but I made that promise, so I will set aside my plans and I will come and help. This is a man who has integrity. And when we make a vow to do something, the righteous person will remain true to their word, even if we have to make sacrifices, to be honest. You can think of an example of that back in Joshua chapter 9, where the oath that Joshua and the elders of Israel made with this really, really far away nation who had come to them and wanted to sue for peace, finding out only days later that they were right there next of who they were to conquer. 
And they couldn't break their oath. They had to keep it to their own harm. But notice, look at the practices that he doesn't practice. At the end of verse 4, he does not change. Verse 5, he does not put out his money at interest. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. He's not fickle. This is the other side of the coin of integrity. A blameless and wise person works hard to keep their word, and they are also someone who will not change their word for personal convenience. And this is really hard to do. But then look at this. He is also not greedy. He doesn't put his money out at interest. In ancient times, the people who borrowed are in the same class as the people who borrow today. They're usually the poor. They needed money to keep themselves from being sold into slavery. And here is a blameless man who loans money without charging interest. We've learned from doing studies on the Old Testament and the backgrounds of that time, interest rates could run as high as 50%, which pales in comparison to the loan sharks who are out there today that can charge up to 3 and 400%. But God's law puts strict regulations on borrowing and lending. Deuteronomy is full of it in chapter 23 and 24. God prohibited the term usury or the charging of interest Because the need of the poor was so real and sincere that they had to get in debt and it was only going to add insult to injury if people would extract from them more than what they could repay through interest. Notice again at the end, and this will be a theme that we will pick up as we begin our series in in 1 Samuel in a couple weeks, he cannot be bought. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. This man and his dealing with the poor shows his blameless ways. Instead of taking advantage of them, as often was the case, as they were drawn into court, the wealthy could afford to pay a bribe and thwart justice. You see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. Bribery was prohibited by the law in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, but the godly witnesses and judges, they were to refuse any bribe. They were to see it for what it was, an attempt to pervert justice. And the psalmist says, here's one who is innocent. He will not take a bribe against the innocent. He will not pervert justice. He will not be a part of any efforts to thwart justice. Now, we just covered the whole psalm. And what we're about to do in the next few minutes is make it applicable to ourselves. I want you to hear me. This psalm is not a handbook for us to live by because we can't. Not one of us in our own strength is blameless, has perfectly kept the law. Oh, sure, maybe we've loaned people money and we didn't charge them interest. But have we spoken truth in our heart always and in every circumstance? Have we never slandered with our tongue? Have we never done anything wrong to those around us? David is not promoting a system of ethical morality. 
Because apart from the Lord Jesus, no one can even come remotely close to a place where they will live a life as described here in Psalm 15. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and reflect on our own lives, let alone our culture, we will admit we are natural-born liars and thieves. I mean, it started in the nursery. Let's just be honest. We stole toys from other kids. Some of us never gave that up, and we've taken things that don't belong to us. We've said mean and unkind things, not just when we were in junior high and we'd lost our senses, but even yesterday, perhaps even today. We cover and hide our failures. We take credit for things that don't belong to us. We will abuse our authority. We see in our culture people in power using it to perverse pervert justice. We see people who hate one another due to envy, greed, or prejudice. Where are those who are walking blamelessly, who are doing what is right? Where are the people with the attitudes and the actions described in Psalm 15? Oh, that righteousness would be exalted in a nation, right? And here's something important for us to consider this morning. Because we are sinners... And because our culture, our nation, our city, our homes, our church is full of sinners, if our version of what is true and what is right and what is good were all that, were, all that mattered, where would we be? Think about this for a moment. If everyone did that which was right in their own eyes then naturally we would come to believe that we have the moral right to do what we believe is right in our eyes, and who cares what someone else says? There's no other authority. There is no moral compass. There are no guiding principles except to take care of ourselves, to live the way we choose. And if we accept the idea that morality changes from generation to generation, none of us would ever know what sin is. Because there's no enduring standard. We could just say, well, that's the way it was. Here's the new morality, and we have the freedom to embrace it. And we can't say that anything is wrong. So what we actually see and discover in this psalm is that the creator of the universe is revealing himself to his creation. And apart from God peeling back the fabric of our lives and stepping into it with his word and in the flesh of Jesus we would never really know how we ought to live. We discover here in this psalm that what God says is intended to apply to to everyone in every age. He, in His great mercy, has revealed truth to us, to us in this world, through His covenant King David, truth that we would not know apart from God sharing it, truth that informs us what is right and wrong. But unfortunately for us, God reveals truth and it condemns us all, right? I mean, that's the sad reality. We have failed. I mean, even in these short five verses, we have failed numerous times, and not just like one in each category, but numerous times of every ilk and sort of sin. Who among us is righteous? Who among us can live blameless before God? None of us can. 
And so we find ourselves under the bad news of the gospel, that the gospel condemns sinners for being sinners. It shows us God's holiness and our sinfulness and the huge gap that is between them, a gap that can't be remedied by our cleaning ourselves up. We can never undo the sins we have done. Oh, sure, we can stop. We can learn from a, a two-year-old to be greedy and sharing, to hit, to get, and we can learn to be generous. But we can't undo those sins. We can't atone for them. And all the good that we could do from this day forward will never compensate for the wrong we've done to this point. So we're in this place of, of, of a conundrum. What do we do? I mean, is David asking this question to point out the fact that nobody can stand before God? Nobody can worship Him? Is there any hope here? Well, God tells us. The point of Psalm 15 is not to eliminate everyone from true worship. The point is to show us that God has provided a way for His people to live in relationship with Him. In the Mosaic system, God provided the sacrifice, sacrificial system so that covenant breakers could have their sins atoned for through faith as they brought an animal sacrifice. In this psalm, it's, it's under the Davidic covenant. It was the last covenant that was instituted by the Lord in the Old Testament. And so from psalm to the end of the Old Testament, everything happens under the Davidic covenant, that God has a king who is to lead his people in righteousness, as we saw last week from Psalm 25. God merges his throne with David's. And so here we see the apex of redemption. The problem was God's people rejected the covenant. It led to their exile, their banishment from God's presence and in, from his land. He scattered them among the nations. And even later, after a remnant was able to return, it wasn't like it was during David's reign. It's true that we see a new covenant being mentioned by the prophets in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but even that covenant wasn't inaugurated, it wasn't instituted until Jesus came. And therein is the solution to our sin problem. Jesus, being both God and man, divine, takes on flesh and is born from the kingly line of David. He is the greater David who is able to rule and reign in righteousness. He is the David who is able to preserve his people from their enemies. Both sin and sin's greatest enemy, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is death. And Jesus delivers us from both of them. Jesus is the one who, as we sang this morning, took God's wrath meant for us upon himself. He was righteous. He was blameless. We are celebrating that today, this morning. We are celebrating a real person who gave a real life, whose blood was spilt, whose body was broken, who did it for us. And not because we were worth it but because God delights in showing his mercy to sinners. And this is a means for us to celebrate. We've just had bad news, and now we get this wonderful good news. Rightly condemned, we can be reconciled? Are you kidding me? This is, this is what it means to know Jesus? God promises us. 
through this new covenant that we can receive a new heart. Through His Son, we can have a heart that loves God and seeks His kingdom. A heart that is washed clean from all its sin. A life that is made new. The one who never sinned took our sin upon Himself in order that He would atone for us. He put an end to all animal sacrifices. He is, as Hebrews says, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And he rose from the grave. And so now he offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who call on his name in faith. Look at the end. He who does these things shall never be moved. I think there's a double meaning here. This applies not only to Jesus as the perfect one who could ascend to the sojourn in the tent of the Lord, who could dwell in his holy hill, who was blameless and did what was right. He will never be removed from his new seat, the right hand of the Father. He will never, ever be forced to resign as king. He will never be banished. He will never be defeated. He will reign forever. But it's also true for every single one of us who hide ourselves in him. We too shall never be moved. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Because of him, we can live this life according to God's moral standard. You see, we can't keep it perfectly, but Jesus did. And as we follow him, he will give us the strength to die to self, to enable us to walk and to speak and to do what is blameless and right. We can look after the poor. We can defend those who are weaker around us. We can speak the truth. We can stand before God and we can worship Him in His presence without shame. You see, the reward of God ensures that the blameless and the righteous will live with Him. It doesn't say that we'll never face adversity, but it does promise that we will never be moved. God is the one who will keep you to the end. Once you belong to him, you are his forever. Your body may be buffeted by disease. Your life may be taken. But your soul, your character can stand because of Christ. This is God's promise to you. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, I'm a Christian, James, but I I just don't live like this. I mean, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I do lie. Sometimes I do evil to those around me. Let me speak first to you this way. Here's what you need to do. You need to confess your sin and you need to stop sinning. You need to do what you know to be right. It's as simple as that. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We need to be a people who are set apart for the Lord, who reverence Him with our lives. Not just in this time here on a Sunday morning, but throughout our week, throughout the whole of our day. Second, let me remind you what blameless means. Yet again, it does not mean perfect. Some of us are carrying guilt we will never be able to resolve, and we need to lay it on Jesus' feet. You will never be good enough. Accept that. 
Stop trying to earn your righteousness even after it's been freely given to you. Stop trying to think that God's love is somehow enhanced by your obedience and then by your disobedience, it's somehow you're, you lose some of his favor. Friend, that is not the truth, brethren. Did you know that in the Old Testament, three men were called blameless? A guy by the name of Noah, another guy by the name of Abraham, and another by the name of Job. And if you were to take time to study out each of these three men's lives, you would see they weren't perfect. They sinned. They made their share of mistakes. But they had a fear of God. They had a reverence for God. And so they turned away from evil. They desired to please God. Now, under the new covenant brought to us through Jesus, we find numerous people who are called blameless. Did you know that the entire church in Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonians and to Timothy in Ephesus and Jude and in Revelation, all of these people, believers, were called blameless. You, Christian, are blameless because of Jesus, not because of you. You have been washed in the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. We are forgiven. And so, are you prepared to stand before God? You see, the temple, the tabernacle that David brought into Jerusalem is gone. The temple that Solomon made, they're both long gone. But there's a day coming when God will once again dwell in the presence of us. Listen to John's description of the new Jerusalem. It comes from Revelation chapter 21. And I saw no temple in this city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be a day, brethren, when we will be free from sin and we will be in God's presence forever. What a day that will be. We started this morning by observing the value of a good question and I promised you that David's question is the most important question we need to answer. And I I said that I hoped that by the end of this you would agree with me. So let me close with a question. How will you Prepare yourself to meet your holy God. That's the question we need to wrestle with. We can ignore this and go on with our day. And for a time, we might be successful. We could say, oh, I'm going to work harder, and then from now on, you know, I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to talk like this. I'm going to stop all these things that I'm doing in my life, and we can do this in our strength, and we can trust in ourselves, and we will find ourselves discouraged and disheartened, and we will question the authenticity of the gospel because we are trusting in ourselves. 
How will you prepare yourself to meet your holy God? I think there's only one answer, and it's to hide yourself in the righteousness of Christ. It's to cry out for his mercy and live in daily dependence on it. It's to give yourself wholly to the Lord, entirely to the Lord. Father, we pray that you would help your people. Help each of us, Lord, as we linger over your word to reflect on this. David, of all people, to write this psalm under your inspiration, for you to use such a flawed man as this to point out the supremacy of Christ in all things is astounding. It ought to inspire within each and every one of us an understanding that God delights in saving sinners. That God intends to use his word to reveal his truth to a world that apart from God's intervention in it and his uh, injecting himself in it through his word and through Jesus would never know God. Sure, it, it's true that creation testifies that there's a sovereign creator, there's this deity out there, but who that is and how to relate with him cannot be revealed through scripture or through uh, nature, it must be revealed through scripture. And we thank you this morning that you are preparing us to meet you. And I, and, and I pray, Lord, I pray that you would move the hearts of those who are still far from you. That you would draw them to yourself through your Son. That they would see a futility in living independently of you. That whether it's through their circumstances or through the love and the fellowship of other Christians, there would be a movement of hearts. That today you would be glorified as your people stand with one voice and sing and celebrate a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.